Two and a Half Admins, episode 119. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, a plug for Virtualization Showdown, FreeBSD Beehive versus Linux KVM, written by Jim on Clara's website, Alan. Yep. It's a very interesting result. Yeah, it uh, turns out FreeBSD is extremely good at uh, storage these days. I was not expecting a dominating win across the board in storage for FreeBSD versus Linux, but I got one. It's not like it's the only thing we've been working on for years. <laughs> uh, well, not the only thing, but it's definitely been uh, a focus for a long time. Thinking about taking your computer to the repair shop? Be very afraid, says Ars Technica. Not surprisingly, female customers bear the brunt of privacy violations. So this is about a study from a Canadian university where they sent a bunch of laptops into various repair places. And uh, it turns out that the people working in there tend to snoop on your data quite a little bit. Well, obviously, this is just a problem for those pervy Canadians like Alan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never happened in the good old US of A. Actually, I, I was thinking when I first heard about this stuff was actually a, a friend of mine who ran a little independent computer repair shop in Texas or somewhere. And there happened to be this forum that all the people that ran such shops had on, on the internet where they'd swap some of the most ridiculous things they would come across. And I'm like, yeah, glad I don't ever need the services of that kind of place where I'm going to drop my computer off. But yeah, that, that definitely leaves me concerned for family members. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't know which place to recommend you go to avoid this kind of thing. And this study says it turns out it probably doesn't Make a big difference whether you go to a small mom and pop place or a, a big chain. People are creepy everywhere. Your chances of getting like really badly ripped off on the repair are a lot worse at, you know, the big chain, like a geek squad or what have you. They're way more likely to sucker you in for hundreds of dollars worth of, you know, maintenance that you don't need, parts that you don't need than a local shop is. But the local shop is probably going to have more time for whichever sketchy dude they've got behind the counter to go rooting through your hard drive looking for your nudie folder. So <laughs> you pick your poison, I guess. What was most disturbing, though, was the number of people who will just give them the login details, the password and stuff to get into the laptop. Where, okay, sometimes you need to, but the study mentioned sometimes it was just a battery that was dodgy and needed to be replaced. And there's no reason they need to log into your account to check that a battery replacement has worked. They can do that in the BIOS. Right, or boot off a USB stick or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you should get too worked up about that. Hardly any shops, if any, are asking for passwords or they don't need passwords specifically so, oh, I want to make sure I can root around that one. You end up with a general policy of like, you know, leave the password, log into the machine, because when you get a machine from an end user, you know, God knows what you're going to get for a report of what's wrong with it. Mm. You're not going to know everything you need at the time. So it's easier to just have a default policy of you leave your login. If we need to log in, we'll have what we need to log into the machine and do what we need to do. That's really what motivates that. There are times that you need to get something fixed, and that means you've got to give somebody admin access. You know, it's not much different than letting a locksmith work on the door to your house. Like, oh, but how do I keep him out of the house? Well, you you don't. He's he's a locksmith, you know? <laughs> you, you brought him over there, and whether he changes your lock or not, he can get into the house. That's what he does. It's a pretty similar situation with IT techs. So if you're talking about like a, a whole 
bench full of dudes back there and you don't know who's going to be working on your computer when kind of a situation. I would never trust that to guarantee me that nobody's going to root through my stuff. Like, that's just not how that works. If you've got things that you absolutely don't want, you know, the the guys behind the bench to be able to root through, you have to encrypt them. And that doesn't just mean, oh, I turned BitLocker on on that folder, but, you know, it just works whenever I turn on my computer. No, you need to encrypt them in a way that, like, you have to authenticate to open that folder separately from your authentication to boot and log into the machine itself. If you don't do that, there's just, there's no way around it. Whoever you hand your computer to is going to be able to root through it. And now you're just hoping they won't. Yeah, I saw an interesting one, I think a different article on this same story about phones now are starting to have a, a repair mode where access to things like your photos is locked off, but enough of the OS works that you can get your screen replaced and make sure it works or a battery or whatever else might be wrong with a phone. And do we need something like that for laptop operating systems where there's enough of something that the repair people can do what they need, but it's keeping you know your other data completely inaccessible? Well, don't we have that with USB live boat of Linux? Like, isn't that kind of what that's for? Well, it depends. Like, if the problem you're having is Windows doesn't do this properly, mm, and that's true. where you take it to the repair shop, they can't fix that from Linux necessarily. No, I was thinking more hardware-wise, but I suppose software-wise, yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, I imagine about half the machines that go into a repair shop like this is just, I got so much malware that I need you to fix it for me. Uh, but I don't know if that's as much of a thing as it used to be. It's definitely not as much as it used to be. It's certainly still an issue, but it's it's nothing like the terrible old days of like, oh my God, the mid 2000s to the you know early 2010s. Oh yeah, well I had a sideline around that time, and it wasn't even necessarily malware. It was just Windows being so terrible that it would just slow down just through normal use, and you'd have to periodically reinstall it to make it actually usable. But yeah, here they're specifically finding people going through you know, and cleaning out the recently accessed folder and so on because they've been snooping where they probably shouldn't have been. But they, I think they found at least one case where the repair technician like DD'd the whole hard drive to a backup to keep a copy, which is definitely very suspect. And a couple other things, although in one case, they found the logs of the kind of, not malware, but the, the logging utility that the researchers had put on the laptop had been destroyed along with the logs. And the tech saying, you know, they had to remove multiple viruses from the device, even though, as the researchers say, this is a fresh image of Windows 10 that's just been filled with a bunch of fake browsing history and stuff. And so it definitely didn't have any malware. Although, to be fair, what would you think an unknown logging utility was if you encountered it as a repair yeah. tech with yeah. just a laptop that was supposed to be somebody's? You'd be like, holy shit, this poor lady's got rats all over this machine. Yeah. And, and in the defense of DD in uh, an image of it, well, before you start messing with it, having a, a known copy of the disk that you could then DD back onto it seems like quite a sensible idea to me. I mean, if in terms of data protection and potentially GDPR stuff, it might be a bit dodgy, but it's certainly the kind of thing I used to do 10, 15 years ago. Well, like, yeah, if I'm if somebody's bringing me a hard drive for data recovery, definitely that's the first thing I do. Depending what the complaint is, it maybe doesn't make sense. But I think the biggest thing that the researchers were after is that most of these places were not presenting some kind of privacy policy to detail mm. what of your data they might access and what they might keep, but also just people aren't aware of how much a tech could do to their with the data on their laptop. And maybe a couple more 
boilerplate disclaimers would help people do that. But I, you know, if your computer doesn't work and you're taking it to get fixed, I don't know that it's going to make you change your mind about that either, right? In my experience, yes, people are aware of how much a tech could see. You don't need a degree in computer science to think I put it on the computer and the guy who computers for a living can see it. You'd be surprised at the number of terrible, terrible people who have done terrible, terrible things who have been caught by taking it to computer people to fix it for them. Mm -hmm. Just seemingly unaware that they were going to get busted for doing those terrible, unspeakable things. Yeah, I I remember when I was in college, there was a local company that hired college students to do tech support for some company in the US where like you got the computer as part of the internet service. And they included like, we'll come remote in and fix the computer for you all the time. And it's like, you couldn't get the people to stop going into the porn long enough for you to fix their computer remotely. (laughs) Yeah. But another thing the study found was that 33% of broken devices don't go to a repair shop because of privacy concerns over, you know, what the repair shop's going to be able to access. And it does suggest that maybe we need people to have a lot more control over how their private data is stored on the device. Yeah, and to be clear, Joe, as far as the thing you're talking about with, you know, people getting busted because they took computers with very illegal imagery on them, you know, to a computer store and got busted. I think the thing that you're not realizing about that is that doesn't mean that the guy that took it in didn't know that that was a risk. It's that he didn't have a choice because he didn't know how to fix the computer. Yeah. And he needed the computer to work. You know, even if nothing else, like he needed it to feed the same addiction that he got busted for to begin with Mm. and would get absolutely freaking desperate without it. Like there's only so many times they can say, screw it and, you know, chuck it in a skip and go buy a new laptop at Best Buy, you know? Yeah, I suppose so. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit, and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Alan, you found a Twitter thread by Jan Schaumann about DNS concentration. Yeah, I follow some interesting people on Twitter, in particular, some of the people from some of the top DNS operators and so on. And they occasionally just tweet really interesting things. And so they started with the the classic old XKCD article about the complicated modern design that all depends on this one little cog or piece. In this case, he labeled all of the different parts pieces of DNS, but basically the whole internet hinges on DNS. And it turns out it's not as distributed and reliable as we might have hoped it was. Just like everything else on the internet, it's becoming more and more concentrated. So he kind of walks us through his mental process as he tries to gather some of the information here. He's like, well, let's start with just getting a list of all of the different top-level domains. So, you know, your .com, .net, but also, you know, 
systems and .fm and all the weird uh, generic TLDs we have now. And so he does a zone transfer and gets the root of those and starts looking at all the different ones you can get, but notes that a lot of the country code operators like .ca don't make the entire zone publicly available. So ignoring the country code specific ones, they managed to find 1168 zone files that were about seven gigabytes of data, of which .com accounts for about 4.8 gigabytes of it. And then with a little bit of awk and Perl glue, started extracting information from that. So the root zone itself is served by 13 authoritative servers that are run by 12 different operators. Uh, originally it was 13 and 13, but VeriSign runs two of them, the A and J root server. In total, that makes nine U.S. organizations, three of which are quasi-government, one Swedish company, WIDE in Japan, and RIPE NCC in the Netherlands that control the root of the, the DNS for all of the internet. So he said, so far so good, but let's look at those 1400 TLDs, .com, .net, .org, .gov. But then they get into some of the interesting ones, like the, the Punicode ones that are in other character sets that you can't even print, and so on. So they looked at those and found about 7,500 unique name server records covering 5,600 unique name servers, which looked reasonably diverse as he was looking through the list. But if you look closer, you'll notice that many of the name servers are in the same domain. And so we flatten things out. We see that the root has a lot of the same name servers. So looking at all the NS records they found, which was about 224 million of them, breaking that down by top level domain, about 74% of them were .com. But what really became interesting is when they started looking at basically who controls the DNS for all this stuff. So parsing all those zone files, they found about 2.7 million unique name servers that they could group under 1 million different domains. And when they looked at that, you see about 20% of them are from domaincontrol.com, which if I'm not mistaken is GoDaddy. And then about 6% of all the domains were from Google domains, and then we had about 4.5% at Cloudflare, and then we uh, registrar-servers.com, which I think is Namecheap or Enum or some other big registrar, Wix with 2.2%, DNS.com, AWS DNS with another 2%, NS1.net 2%, etc. But looking at the 534 million NS records across a million domains, they found that about 43% of all of it was served by the same 165 name servers across just 10 domains. So a lot of concentration there. So that's kind of interesting. But then they dig into looking at over half of all name server records are resolving to IP addresses in just four different autonomous systems. So we're looking at the diversity by the actual hosting provider behind it. And we, they saw 34.4% of all the name servers serving up these domains were from Cloudflare. And then they got eight and a bit percent for Alibaba and 5% for GoDaddy. And then you see OVH and Amazon and Google and a bunch of other people breaking into that list. So then we get the really depressing stuff looking at breaking down again by autonomous system numbers, the top million domains. And we see more than 40% of that is Cloudflare now for the top million busiest domains on the internet. And then, you know, we see the same thing with Alibaba, and then you got Akamai, GoDaddy, Amazon, UltraDNS, OVH, LeaseWeb, Google Cloud Platform, SoftLayer, which is IBM. So the entire idea with the distributed database that is DNS is that everybody 
could control their own DNS. And now we're at more than 40% of it is controlled by Cloudflare. And it's it's not quite like, you know, a blockchain or something where if somebody controls 50%, then they can invalidate everybody else's stuff. But it was never meant for any one entity to have that much control. So this is basically inevitable, this concentration of DNS, because people don't want to manage DNS. Mm-hmm. Which it seems odd to me because it's just frankly not that hard, but people really, really don't want to manage DNS to the point that when any given service they use says, let us take over your DNS, they say, sure, here you go. Here's my login. So you end up with, you know, now your your web host runs your DNS or these days, most commonly, it's your domain name registrar that's still running the DNS because they offered to you to host it for free and you were there to get a domain. Now you got a domain. Now you got DNS. Problem solved. Then we get down to just, you know, why does Cloudflare have 40% of it? And the majority of that reason is because Cloudflare asks for it. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure Cloudflare is doing some kind of extra you know, DDoS mitigation service specifically at the DNS level, as well as, you know, with the hosting that goes behind it. But fight me if you think I'm wrong. The vast majority of the reason why is just because so many people are using Cloudflare and Cloudflare asks for it, so they get it. Yeah, well, I think the thing I found surprising is that it's not a bigger majority of things using like Amazon's DNS, uh, the Route 53 and so on service, that so much of it is concentrated on Cloudflare. Again, they ask for it. But anyway, uh, there's a lot more in that thread. Also, like taking a look at the smaller companies. Once you get past your Akamai, Alibaba, Amazon, Cloudflare, GoDaddy, Google, and Microsoft, some interesting things that start to stand out, especially smaller domains. Like I said, again, like Jim was saying, because GoDaddy is your domain registrar, happens to control, you know, when you get outside the top million websites and just looking at websites in general, like 20% of all name servers for generic TLDs are at GoDaddy because they, I think, are still 70% of the domain registrar market. They're certainly a huge chunk. If you want your DNS to be more distributed than that, absolutely nothing is stopping you. You can absolutely get that running as a project, you know, on your Linode $5 a month VM. You can run it on the same server that you run your web server on to serve your blog or what have you. It does not have to be all separated out or an additional cost or, you know, an enormous hassle. DNS is a very, very lightweight service. There's really not that much involved in getting it up and running and just writing your own zone files. At that point, that's that's all you have to do. And when you register your domain, you just give it the IP address of your DNS server as the name server, and that's it. You're running your own DNS. So it sounds to me then that it's not a huge issue that it's so concentrated. Yes and no. Obviously, if there's a problem at Cloudflare and it takes out, you know, 40% of the internet for the day, that's bad. But in most of these cases, it's going to be, if the DNS is down, the website was going to be down anyway for the same reason. Do y'all remember a few years ago when GoDaddy just got DDoSed off the freaking planet for like, it was like 30 hours, uh, people that were upset at uh, something noxious and kind of right-wing that they'd done. I, I forget what the actual thing that pissed everybody off was, but it got people pissed off enough to DDoS GoDaddy so badly that all of a sudden, yeah, all their domains weren't resolving. That was a hell day for me personally because... I don't like to use GoDaddy for anything, but you know, I get a lot of customers that set up things on their own. And when they did, that's usually what they used. And in those cases where they were still on GoDaddy DNS, 
they couldn't get email, their website didn't work, you know, anything for more than a day while all that nonsense got resolved. The entire point of having more than one name server was supposed to be have some diversity, and maybe you don't want that to all be from the same provider. Although synchronizing it right can be a little more difficult, but there are services that specialize in DNS and do a good job at it, and they don't have to be Cloudflare. <laughs> so you're telling me I shouldn't just have NS1, NS2, NS3 dot the same provider? You can, but obviously something more diverse is better and preferably something any casted and it gets really complicated. But like Jim was saying, it's really not hard to do yourself. Even in my past where I was dealing with ones where we're getting like millions of queries an hour, you still wouldn't break 1% CPU usage on a small machine. It's really not a complicated thing to do, even at the large scale, like looking at VeriSign, who's got to answer the top level stuff for everything that is .com and .net. They still manage to do it, and they're dealing with a, a lot more craziness than what most domains are. Even when Google was managing to send them way more traffic than they needed because of the Chrome bug. Yes, <laughs> the Chrome trying to figure out if your ISP is doing shady things or not. Yeah. Can you imagine being the guy, the one that wrote <laughs> that check? <laughs> like, yeah, turns out you're responsible for 60% of the load on the root DNS servers <laughs> of the planet for like years. And you're like, yeah. I did that. Yeah, you, you meet the guys at the DNS conference and they're like, guess what, dude? Beer is on you. <laughs> We've spent millions of dollars answering your bogus bloody queries. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Joe did. He writes, This is a follow-up to episode 104 regarding my new setup with ZFS. To answer the question you had on the episode, it is for home use, and I'm using it to back up some personal data and some VMs for my home lab cluster. It has been working flawlessly since setup. My additional question is, are there any issues with not having my NAS powered on all the time? I'm running it on an old power-hungry FX processor and would rather not have it running constantly, so I'll leave it on a few days a week so it completes any pending tasks, then shut it back down. I'd say the, the biggest problem with it not running is obviously you can't access the data on it, but uh, if it's your kind of backup archive, then that should be fine. The drives are only rated for so many power cycles, but if you're turning it on for a couple of days, off for a couple of days, it's not going to 
be you know unduly wearing out the hard drives or anything like that. And yeah, if you're making sure to keep it on long enough to complete a scrub like once a month or whatever, and any other things like that, then I think that should be most okay. The scrub was going to be the biggest thing that that I was going to mention with that is you need to make sure that uh, you're going to have an automatically scheduled scrub on your NAS and make sure you actually have it on during that period when it runs and you know keep an eye on it to figure out how long it's running before you can turn it off again. So I guess basically that, that probably operationally just comes down to, you know, when you decide you want to turn it off, just check and make sure it's not in the middle of a scrub first and, you know, that you haven't missed scrubs entirely. Yeah. If, if it's scheduled to start, you know, on the first Sunday of each month and it's off on that day, then it might never start and you want to make sure that it does actually happen. And then to Jim's other point, if your version of ZFS is new enough, I don't remember which version it came in, there's the zpool wait command where you can do zpool wait dash t scrub. And that process will just not exit until the scrub is finished. So you could do zpool wait scrub semicolon shutdown minus h now. And then the system can just power off once the scrub is complete. And that way you don't have to keep checking on it and forget to turn it off for two extra days or whatever. You can have it power itself off once the scrub is complete. It's my understanding, though, that if you shut it down in the middle of a scrub, when you boot it back up again, it'll start again, right? Yeah, it will. It might lose like an hour of progress because it only writes stuff down every couple of hours. But yeah, it won't hurt anything. But if your point is that you want to make sure it finishes, you want to make sure when you're doing a scrub, you're actually completing it. If you do it too much, you might end up, you know, if it takes six months to actually finish the scrub because it's only on a couple days at a time, then your data is not as protected as you thought it was. Now... I've always been told that hard drives don't like to spin up and down. They like to spin up once and then just stay spinning forever. But you're telling me that it's okay to turn it off once a week and have it on a few days a week. That seems counterintuitive to what I've always been taught about this stuff. It's not ideal, but it's well within the expected operating environment for those drives. Yeah, especially the desktop drives. They try to tell you they're only rated to be used eight hours a day. <laughs> to last the whole time. And so, yes, the parking and unparking eventually does wear things out. And that's why uh, the ones that power save and have parked 100,000 times in a lifetime is not good. <laughs> but if you're talking about a couple hundred times over a five-year period, some people reboot more than that and it'll be okay. But yeah, you don't want it to be excessive. You don't want to be turning it on and off multiple times a day because that will eventually wear things out. But if you're talking powered on for four days, then off for four days or whatever. I don't think that's going to cause any problems for the hard drive. Not within its expected service lifetime. A lot of this kind of comes down to, I think Alan is extinct, is sort of instinctively talking more to the idea of, you know, drives that are actually retired when they get old rather than, you know, run until they collapse into a burning heat by the roadside. <laughs> so, you know, if you're trying to limp along a drive to be like the oldest antique possible and still functioning, I would definitely say, yeah, don't ever turn that thing off. Um, the ideal thing to try to get the absolute most runtime ever out of it is never to have a power off and, and startup event other than once to get it going and just leave it there. But again, with that saying, we're talking about this ridiculous extreme of, you know, trying to get some antique on its very last legs to live forever. And that's not the way you should be thinking about hard drives. Yeah, you shouldn't still be running IDE drives at this point, for example. I'm sure plenty of people have got them that are in that exact same situation. 15 years ago, they powered it on, and it's just never powered down since, and it's been fine. But the same thing applies to all the mechanical things. Like, 
when a fan in your computer is going to die is more likely when it stops and starts than when it stayed running the whole time. Mm-hmm. Powering it off uh, is definitely the riskiest time for the machine not coming back up. But you're not going to wear out a less than five-year-old hard drive just by powering it off twice a week or whatever. Or even just, you know, when you're when the fan in your PC gets that absolutely obnoxious rattle that you can't stand. <laughs> like, it's not just like in the middle of while it's been running for a week. Now you turn it off and you turned it back on. And when you did, that fan just started rattling and rattling. You're like, please, please let it stop. <laughs> and it won't stop. <laughs> and you're like, I wish I had never turned that computer off. And... You can't tell me you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I had a a server that we had to move from Portland to Seattle. And when it got there, it wouldn't stay powered on for more than 30 minutes at a time. It would just keep, well, it would stay powered on, but it would just reset itself every 10 or 20 minutes. It was very confusing. Like, even if you just left it in the BIOS screen, it would reboot. And we, like, updated the BIOS and the BMC firmware, still did it. And then after sitting off for a while and poking at it, and we like reseeded all the components and that didn't help. But then eventually reflashed the BIOS again, but this time from the newer IPMI, not the older IPMI. And now it's been up for three days and it hasn't crashed, but I don't trust it yet. And it's like, yeah, if we had just not powered this machine off, it would still be working fine. But we powered it off and now it's being cranky. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.